Hello, salams, and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history, and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Salam, Zarar here. In this episode, I speak to poet and translator Hale Liza Ghafouri. She has translated Gold, a new and modern translation of poetry by Jalaluddin Rumi, printed by New York Review Books. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. I'm a, um, I'm a big fan already and I've already read one of your books. So I'm looking forward to reading what else what else you have. So we will send a copy of this. So just a brief introduction maybe if I if I step back and tell you who I am first before we yes. uh, step into this. Uh, so I, I'm based in London uh, and Zara who runs Sick of Footsteps, she's also based in London. And there's a couple of us, one guy in Toronto um, and we have a team globally of writers and uh, and contributors to Sacred Footsteps. So we're an online publication um, dedicated really to, I, I don't want to say Muslim culture, but we focus primarily on the East, if you like. We do sacred um, um, experiences or just travel journeys. We, we review books also. So we do tours. So we do a bit of everything. And yes. uh, so we've, we've been receiving some books from New York, review books and and we go send your copy. And we've been reading Rumi for a while now, and he's an interesting person. So this is how he came to me. And um, so my background is um, I'm although I I'm, I live in London, I, I spend a lot of time in Iran and uh, in the Middle East. And I started writing a couple of years ago. So I published uh, um, a translation recently of a of a poet. I don't know if you know Muhammad Iqbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I've heard of him. Yes. Yeah, he's. He's Iqbal Lahori, yeah. And we've been looking at, so I've been studying translations for a while now and how we do translations from Persian uh, or Turkish, Arabic, English into, um, or Urdu into English. And so this this translation of yours was just really interesting. And uh, and we thought, okay, we need to speak to Hale and, and just get an idea of your journey and who you are and how you came to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want, yes. let's, let's just jump straight into it. If you, if you can just give me a quick introduction into who you are and, and we'll go from there. Sure. My name is Hala Liza Gafori. I'm a translator and poet and musician, vocalist and educator. I live in Brooklyn. I was born in New York city to Iranian parents and I've translated a collection of poems by Rumi, as you know, the 13th century mystic and sage. The book is called Gold. It's been published by New York Review Books. Um, as a musician, I've toured across America and in Europe with various projects, often singing the words of Persian poets such as Rumi or in Hafez, Sepehri, uh, Farouk Farzad. And uh, I've also been teaching workshops on Rumi's poetry and the mystical philosophy that that um, is so present in them at universities and, and institutions in America. Excellent. That's really interesting. How long have you been writing or translating or, or I guess, in, in this field? How long have you been doing this? Well, uh, many years. It's been probably 15 years or so. I was... Uh, taking a class when I was receiving my MFA 
in poetry, in creative writing poetry, there was a translation class and that sort of kick-started it. I started translating uh, the poetry of a contemporary Persian poet named Sohrab Sepehri. So I began there. He's, you know, much more straightforward poet, simpler yeah. to translate. And so his work was a good place to start. That's really interesting. And what about Rumi? So how did you... So firstly, why is, it, why is the book called Gold? What is the, mm. what is, what's the meaning behind that? The book is called Gold, uh, well, for a number of reasons. The word recurs throughout the book. It recurs throughout Rumi's poetry. And uh, most often when he speaks of gold, he's not speaking of the precious metal, but speaking of a feeling state. Um, the Sufis and Rumi are often considered alchemists transform, you know, and they're interested in transforming mental states. So how do we move from the base metal mental state to this, you know, shimmering mental state, this liberated, expansive state of being uh, that enables us to touch the ecstatic, to feel a sense of union, to move beyond me versus you, us versus them. This is the golden state, a radical compassion, generosity, a sense yeah. of un union beyond self. So this is gold in this Rumi's gold. in Rumi's universe. This is this is the gold, right? And uh, in the introduction in the book, I mentioned that you know I think the Sufi path can be summed up in a prayer of teach me to love more deeply, let me love more deeply, um, and gold is the deepest love. That's a beautiful explanation. Gold being the purest form, right? And if you look in the in the world of just chemistry, it's it's considered an almost. I guess it is an at the moment an impossible feat. But in in poetry and and in the metaphorical sense, it is that state that you want to get to that elevated state. Okay, that's that's a beautiful. I, I've been meaning to ask you that. I read it in the introduction, but I wanted your explanation, and that's a, that's beautifully put. So, what is who is Rumi to you? So you said you've been translating earlier poets uh, poets earlier than this, and how did Rumi come about? Why Rumi and why not somebody? I know there's translations of Hafiz and there's other great Persian poets, but how? what got you into Rumi? Mm. Well, Rumi has, has kind of spiraled through my life. You know, I heard him as a child. My father would recite his his words, his poems, and he would he would recite the words of other poets as well. But I think Rumi was was their favorite. And, they, you know, they would have shares, which are called poetry nights. So I'd hear Rumi then as well. And then later I started reading the translations and and some of them impacted me. And um, eventually I started singing some of Rumi's lyrics. They're very rhythmic. You know, he was often composing while a drum was playing. So there's a rhythm embedded and a music embedded in his lines. So they lend themselves to singing. And uh, as I was touring, I would sometimes sing his words. And then eventually I started translating. In 2016, I started. I saw a poem that had already been translated into English. And I thought, hmm, is that what he said? You know, I wasn't sure. I wasn't convinced. And I looked at the original and I thought, oh, I would have translated it differently. So I did. I, I took a shot at translating the poem. And that's when I began. And then it was, and then I continued and it was, it was a hobby and it turned into a passion. And then eventually I had a manuscript. 
Okay. So, and did yeah. he influence on uh, did he influence you as a poet as well? I guess he must have, right? Growing up listening to Rumi at home. Yes, 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 yes. And the process of translating him I think has has certainly impacted me as a poet. One of the things I love about his his well, I love about the Ghazal form is, is how it it uh, encourages leaps. You know, he he leaps, he has a lot of leaping imagery in the poetry and there's a poetic illogic in his poems I really that I really appreciate, you know. What do you what do you mean by leap? Just explain that. Yeah, well the Ghazal form is a series of couplets and each, you know, the, they often have a re repeating refrain. So at the end of the line, at the end of the couplet, you might have the same word or a rhyming word. For instance, the word could be dance, birahsa, dance, as it is in one of his poems. And so every couplet ends with the word dance. And each couplet stands on its own. You could kind of consider it a series of tweets in a way. You know, it's, they're yeah. they're sort of self-contained self -contained couplets, couplets. That, yes, that stand that stand on their own. So you can often extract them, and one couplet itself can be can feel like a complete poem. You know, and then so so then between the couplets, there's a leap. They don't have to. There's no n not necessarily a narrative, or really, there's never really a narrative. Uh, he's just centering his work around that theme of dance and then he is speaking about it from many different angles so there's a leap between the couplets in that way um got it and does this this independent or self-contained couplets is this what lends essentially to I feel like a contemporary culture is it lends him to becoming more you can quote him on his own within a line or a couplet and it's easier to turn him into a meme for example than uh some maybe traditional english poets right, who right. don't who don't follow the ghazal pattern so is there anything equivalent in the english language from a poetry perspective to the ghazal or no not really though though american poets are you know are more and more writing ghazals so there isn't a form that I can think of that resembles it, um, an English-based form that resembles it. But uh, now internationally, po poets are, are playing with this form. And there's a unique metering system, right, which is specific. Um, so it's not it's not just couplets independent, but each there's a there's a uh, structure to it. And so when you read it, that melody and that and that leaping and that jumping, it it's it's poetic, it's rhythmic, and there's a reason for that, right? So there's um, this is what makes Rumi quite unique. And with my work on on Iqbal, Iqbal, if you if you've read any of his Persian works, he's also mm -hmm. obsessed with with Rumi, and so sometimes he completely borrows a, a line or a verse or a couplet from Rumi, interjects it into his poetry, and because he follows the same metering system. You wouldn't you wouldn't know if it was uh, Iqbal or Rumi unless you know the poets. So it lends to okay. that borrowing and sharing of and which which is which I find really fascinating. And equally, because the couplets are independent, this is a wider point, right, about Persian poetry, why people like Hafiz or Umar Hayyam and Rumi are so fascinating in the West is because it kind of it's, it's a very liberating feeling that you can have these completely self-contained independent couplets and it's it follows seemingly a very unstructured approach, but obviously it isn't. Compare that to something like Keats or Shakespeare, 
it's 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 a very different world of poetry, right? So Persian poetry almost feels liberating. So I'm 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 I guess I'm British. I grew up reading Shakespeare, and and unlike a lot of young people who don't like poetry, I was obsessed with Shakespeare because this is this is all I knew that he's the height of English culture and literature and poetry. So if Shakespeare is a great, we should study him. So I grew up reading sonnets, and then when I was introduced to people like Rumi, I realized there was a whole different world of of structured poetry and how how one can almost contain you, one can liberate you. And I completely discarded the chains, and I'll come to the chains in a second with Rumi, that, that I felt like the English poetry had on me. I it didn't it didn't it felt suffocating in in, in a beautiful way. It's just the the magic of of Christian traditional English poetry or French poetry is very different, right, to to the East. Same with Arabic poetry. It's it's almost a reflection of maybe the land, the the culture and, and the people. But sonnets are amazing in their own way. And and in some ways, a, I guess a, a decent comparison to Tokazov. It's not the same thing, obviously, but I guess the English world is still learning about the beauty of Tokazov. So let's move on to, before we actually move on, tell me, you said you read a translation or a verse of Rumi, and you thought, okay, this doesn't sound like the right translation. What is What has been your journey on reading other translations of Rumi before you decided to do your own? Mm. Yeah, I've read a, a, a large number of translations from from Barks, of course, who Har- Andrew Harvey, Jonathan Starr, Mafi, um, Halili, Iraj Anvar, and I think that all of the translators have done interesting work. And you know, I think that uh, it's important to have many translations. I think that uh, we, when we're looking at a poet who was writing 800 years ago, the more translations, the better, so that we can read the different facets, the different ways that people are interpreting and fill in the gaps, so to speak, you know, and sort of find the poem between the translations occasionally, or to find the translator that we really trust and and work and 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 really dive into those translations but at le- at the very least it's nice to have an abundance in case people are missing things which is often the case um you know there's a wide range of of knowledge of sufi mysticism among the translators some people some of the translators of course didn't speak farsi at all so what are we getting we have to look at it and and see there's a poem um you know, where um, Coleman Barks translated Nahang as alligator, and it's a whale. And the poem happens in an ocean. I don't know how the editor, how that passed the editor's desk. But, you know, there are things like that that are obvious errors. And then there are things that are um, more, more ambiguous or more conceptual. And so it's it's good to have a range of translations, I think, at our fingertips yeah. so that we can discover on our own. And, you know, I mentioned that Nahang and the whale alligator issue, but, you know, I also appreciate some of Coleman Barks' work, too. You know, so it's a range. It's a mixed yeah. bag, you know. Do you, you have that, you have that uh, capacity or maybe the capability to do that distinction between reading a host of translations and saying, okay, there's gaps in this one, but it's beautiful and, and we have a variety of options. In my in my study of translations, what, I'm, what I find similar to you is 
everybody interprets things very differently and mm-hmm. and sometimes some works echo more more with you than than others do yeah. and so in in the last so i grew up reading barks and i and i and i have my own issues with with the way he's translated because i think because he doesn't speak farsi i think you mentioned the alligator and the whale i think those issues come about mostly because he's he's basing his translations on nicholson's translation and and then there's an interpretation question which is quite open about i think he's he's saying this is my almost unique poetry to 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 barks um but what i was going to point out was um your translation if i look at the last few years we've had a few good translations of rumi come out um uh, andy williams and then there's a uh, javed mojadati and then there's you your translation is 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 the only one that really struck with me and i'm not quite sure why mm. so mm. walk me through your process of translation what is your interpretation or translation how does that differ if it does to some of the more contemporary translations maybe asara barks maybe in the persian speaking world because now i think we're recognizing we need to have good translations and speaking the language should be a prerequisite mm mm-hmm. the process my process of translation it was of course a multifaceted process and a very interesting one which involved my mother we would sit together and read through ghazals um and discuss them my mother is a is a doctor and also a scholar she speaks impeccable persian and her grandmother was a storyteller uh she would gather my mother and her siblings around the kursi which is this little fire um and tell stories and a lot of these stories were uh stories that are back stories in in Rumi's poetry whether they are stories from the Quran or story folk tale Persian folk tales so in a way i i felt this kind of connection with my great grandmother too during this process you know um and it was wonderful to work with my mother and to discuss the poems aloud and you know it was very clear to me from the very beginning that there are certain lines that a literal translation will do that you can look at the line and say yes this line can be translated almost word for word except for perhaps shuffling the syntax a little bit uh and then there are lines that do require interpretation and um you could sit with 10 Iranians in a room and they will they might disagree about the meaning of the line so how do you deal with these lines the important thing i think is to be aware of the cultural context to be aware of rumi's poetry the other lines in his poetry because sometimes those lines can help you understand mm. what he means in a more elusive line you know um so being aware of his work and of sufi philosophy and really understanding terms like fanna nafs masti hayrat these words are very important yeah. and having a foundation in them you know helps with the translations helps with the elusive lines and you know also some of the words for instance the word idrar means urine but it also means wages right so yeah. knowing the multiplicity of meanings and he meant wages in the poem um but also knowing obscure meanings the older meanings of the words was important so sometimes the process involved 
looking up certain words in the Vajrayab, which is this vast collection of, it's a vast dictionary that includes ancient and obscure meanings of many words. So using that was also important in the process because there are words that we use now in Persian that have a certain meaning that was different in Rumi's time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's critical, right? Because unlike, but it's also a miracle that you you still can read Rumi from 800 years ago. And interpretations may vary between individuals, but on the whole, you get the message. Whereas I think if you take if you take poetry from any other culture outside of that region, I think it's very difficult to find. Maybe Arabic is also another example. You you can't give a you can't give a manuscript to a contemporary reader and just have them read it. And this is something beautiful about Rumi and Hafiz and these poets that the language is pretty straightforward. Of course, there's ambiguity and there's there's a deeper issue of philosophy in what they're trying to say, but on the whole, the language has changed, but it's, it's still very much comprehensible, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, I think that for the average Iranian, Molana is easier to read than um, Shakespeare is for the average average English reader. You know, so, um, yes, Rumi is fairly accessible. And would you say that's that's leading me on to my next question about is what is what was the purpose of Rumi's poetry? Now, in your work, you talk about um, rem removing, I guess, the shackles that Rumi felt like he had removed from his own mind, his own life. And there's a famous story, obviously, of Rumi that we know and, and Shams, who enters at a critical stage in Rumi's life. Can you just walk us through what the poetry looks like and from that perspective and, and did it change? Because he didn't always write poetry. This was something I guess he did maybe later in his life. But walk us through, the, is that is that why his poetry is much more accessible as well? Because he, he wants us to understand his message in a much more effective way. Why is Rumi, I guess, seen as he is, is today? Is this, this idea of de-shackling yourself, what is that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The shackles. What are the shackles? What were the shackles? So Rumi released himself from a number of shackles, it seems to me. If you look at his work, if you look at the writings of Shams, the lectures of Shams and uh, Rumi's own poems, you are often hear him speaking about breaking through the chains. And so, of course, what are the chains? One of these chains, I think, was an attachment to role, rank, and prestige. So in the scholarly and religious milieu that Rumi was part of, um, there was a lot of hierarchical thinking. Uh, people were very much attached to their level on the ladder. And how big was your turban and who were you sitting next to during the gatherings? Were you in one of the VIP seats or not? These things really mattered. And so there was an irony and a, and a hypocrisy to it because here they were speaking about self-transcendence and yet there were all these attachments to um, egoic concerns. So one of the shackles was, was, was this, you know, egoic concerns. How do free yourself from this type of concern. And Shams, who came into Rumi's life around the age of, when, when Rumi was around the age of 38, really, I think, um, focused on this, helped Rumi let go of his need to uphold a reputation. And, um, you know, there's the story of him sending him into 
uh, a Jewish neighborhood to buy wine and then telling him to carry the jug home in plain sight, right? So everyone could see. So this was, of course, a sin for a sheikh or blasphemous for a sheikh to be carrying, to carry a jug of wine home. But what was Shams trying to teach him or show him was don't worry about what anyone thinks of you. You know who you are, right? Uh, let go of that concern. Let go of that need to uphold a uh, persona. So that was one of the shackles. And and how did he? So obviously that that was a probably a much more inward journey. How does that reflect in his work? Other than references to I guess these metaphors of breaking these metaphorical chains. Was there any other way that's that's present? Did his did his style yes. change? Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, there's there's a line, there's a couplet. He says, Take the cotton. So vasvas, this word, pambeya vasvas means the cotton of vasvas. So looking at this word vasvas, vasvas is one word that means the spinning doom-ridden thought in the mind. And he says, take the cotton of the mind's doom-ridden chatter out of your ears. Hear the booming voice of the heavens. The roar of the roar of fate, the ruckus the muse makes. So this idea that the mind is listening to a voice, whether where is that voice? Is it in, is it is it coming from the cramped the cramped self, the egoic self, or is the voice coming from a more expansive self? Right, and how do we find the spaciousness and silence in the mind? All of this was very important to Rumi. He says in another poem. He says, for 40 years, my mind drowned me in thought. He says, if you quit thinking for one hour, what will happen? If you plunge like a fish into love's ocean, what will happen? Right? He says, mayandish, mayandish, don't think, don't think. Quit pouring thoughts like kerosene on everything fresh and green, burning it to the roots. Right? He says, uh, he says a lion leaps out of his cage. A man leaps out of his mind. Bravery is delicious madness, not some circumspect, cagey thought, sly and ungiving. So, wow. this, yeah, so this idea of moving into the more expansive mind um, that is perhaps one could call it the heart, right? Um, moving beyond self-obsession, self-concern. In another poem, he says, you know, uh, well, in another poem, he says, um, thought, sense, reason, I burned them to the roots, right? So he, he's, he's really attempting to get down to another level of spaciousness and emptiness in the mind, right? That it be filled with a grace. Yeah, that's, it's funny, you, you picked the translations that actually I had, I was going to read. So these, these are, these are excellent examples of it. And this idea of reason and rationality versus love. And this is a mm. common theme we find, especially in, in Eastern poetry about, and it doesn't mean that reason and rationality are not important. It's right. It's a limitation of what you can observe and what is observable versus what, what the heart, what the love or the soul can, can, can pick up on. Yes. And yeah, I, 
And I want to ask you something about the way you've translated something, but I want to read a few lines that 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 really moved me. If you if you allow me, sure. And this poem you see, begins with, "You found me once again, you yes. thief of hearts, in drunken ecstasy. You searched the bazaar and found me, even." Through sleepy-lidded, love-drunk eyes, you spotted me. I ran to the tavern. You found me. And and the whole poem goes on, but there's there's something about the way... So if you go back to the de-shackling and, and freeing your mind, in Persian, it's one thing. It's, it's interpretation aside. It hits you because this is how he wrote it, right? But in English, you could word something, you know, a, a thousand different ways. So the way you translate it... I guess this is a difficult question is is how have you done this that it has an almost the same impact on me and reading in Persian and English of course there's difference but there's a there's a beautiful familiarity in the English as almost as he could have written this in English himself does that come from you being a poet or from your intimate understanding of Rumi how did you manage to achieve that I, I guess it's, it's a maybe a rhetorical question well uh, yeah I, I think you know, my goal was certainly to bring the work into the music of contemporary American poetry. I want the I wanted to feel um, familiar without without altering or without altering meaning. Doing my best to bring across the meaning, I wanted to do it in the music of American contemporary poetry, so that it speaks to us um, so in a way. Yeah, how do you, so there's one more line. It says, why do I run when no one can escape you? Why yes. hide when you found me a hundred times? Yes. Now, if I if I read this to a contemporary audience who's not familiar with Rumi, let's assume they're not familiar with Eastern poetry at all, that's, that's a cultural reference, or that, I guess that's a mystical connection that we in the East immediately understand, right? Mm. But this, I, this it's almost... You're bringing Rumi, but you're also bringing a world with you to the West when you're translating this. So this idea of escaping and, and, and being found, are you finding that these are hitting the right spots with the audiences in the English world, English-speaking world? Are they, what is their reaction to something like this? Yeah, I, I think that people are, are who've heard this poem, I think, are moved by it, it seems to me. It seems to be touching people. It's a very interesting poem. And it's interesting that you chose it because one thing that I do want to say is that the original is actually written in third person. So mm -hmm. in, in Persian, we do not have gendered pronouns. So when we say he or she, it's the same word. It's ooh. Mm. And ooh can also be used for the divine force, right? And for a person. So how to translate this? Now, one could say, he found me. Yeah. But that's so limiting. And actually, as a friend of mine laughed, especially with this and found me, you found me, you know, you, you found me a hundred times and all this. She, my friend um, jokingly said it, it would sound like a stalker if you used he. <laughs> Right, because yeah. you you chased me, you found me yeah. here, you know. But but you you keeps the non gendered. I I chose to use the pronoun you because it keeps the non gendered um, aspect of it, and it's more intimate. Because you know who is he speaking to in this poem? Is he speaking to Shams? Is he speaking to God? Is he speaking to both? I think so. Right, yeah. and this poem brings up the 
the sort of sense of sometimes we don't want to be found, and yet we are so lucky to be found. Sometimes we don't know how to be found, and yet we are so lucky to be found. You know, when he says, loving seer, persistent seer, towering cypress of countless gardens, I was pulling a thorn from my foot when you found me. Oh, I love that line. And there's such humility in that line. There's such praise for Shams, you know, loving seer, persistent seer. And I, I was pulling a thorn from my foot when you found me. You know, it's, 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 a, yeah, it's a very interesting poem. And so humble as he is, so humble always. How did you, I, I can, to be honest, I can go through line by line in, in every poem in this book. It's, it's all moving. How did you come to choose this selection and, and which body of work did you pick from? Mm. Because it's yeah. most often we read the Masnavi when we read translations and that's what translators typically go for. What did you use for this? So I worked from his book, the Divana Shams of Tabrizi, which is a book of over 3,200 quatrains and ghazals. And some of the poems have been translated and some of them have not been. Um, when I translated poems that have been translated, it was because I thought that they could use another look and I was, yeah. and I loved them and was interested in them. Um, and some of the poems in the book are from an eye. He's speaking from the eye and they're, they're almost confessional. And we see him, as a seeker struggling, as a hum humble seeker. And I think these poems are very interesting. For instance, when he says, who am I? Who is this I? Pray to so many temptations, dragged this way and that, drawn to the ear like the string of a bow, shot forth like an arrow. And he says later in the poem, am I a star in the zodiac, cycling through houses of fortune and disaster, weeping in one, laughing in another? Oh. You know, there's... There's such an intimacy as he's trying to work out who is he in this kind of this grand mystery. And he says, one moment I feel the sorrow of separation. One moment I'm a mystery in mystery's arms. And, you know, there's this willingness to explore identity, to explore the self, and then, of course, to let go of self. And how do we do that but through compassion? So when in that same poem, he goes through all these struggles and he says, one moment bandit and ghoul, one moment restless and glum, one moment perched on a high roof. And then he says, stay by my side, beloved. Don't empty this cup of compassion. And then he talks about wrenching the post from the ground and, and breaking through the chains, right? So, so this compassion, you know, is, is the absolute fuel and the central um the central gold the central everything for this whole process of moving through layer uh, stages of maps you know because we're never going into a self-punishing that doesn't help us we need to do everything with compassion so finding uncovering compassion loving ourselves and then losing ourselves, right? Must, one must love themselves to lose themselves. And when I say lose themselves, it doesn't mean, it, well, what it means is moving beyond the self-obsessed ego that is very cramped. When he says, for instance, um, I, I will be frustrated, dull and barren as stone if I don't step out of my petty self, take off its tight shoes and wade into rubies. It's such an interesting line 
this what is this realm of rubies that he's talking about? You know, there again is the gem, the precious sort of gem. But this idea that as we move out of our cramped, petty self, <laughs> we open into a more expansive and richer state of mind, a richer state of being. So there's a lot of poems that are touching upon that process in this book. Yeah, that's that's an excellent explanation, actually. I was... I was just lost in the in the words. It, it what is just to kind of summarize a little bit now, and w- given given the importance of what his message is and this and this love and this compassion that you mentioned, it seems seems like a very critical thing, especially in today's world. If you look at a message that is, it's it's even more important than it was a thousand years ago, and yes, and, and this work today. So this is this is one of the reasons I would say this is. Your translation, it is by far my my favorite on Molana Rumi, because Thank it you. does it does do that. It does inspire. So as somebody who's translation who's already translated a poet, there's different ways to do it. And in my opinion, this is maybe you'll agree. The most important is you have to inspire the original message in the reader. One thing is yes, academic translations are important. There's a place for them, and it's important sometimes to have just beautiful translations. But in the end. If you don't capture the essence of the original message, I think there's something lost, and that's a shame. And and with Rumi's mm. compassion that you and and the poems that you selected, by the way, are incredible. I read most yeah, of them from Masnavi, mm. and your selection was I was like, wow, she's 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 done a, not only a beautiful job with the translations, she's picked some beautiful poems to translate. So there's, I guess, two two different ways to celebrate what you've done. I think that takes. That takes a lot of love and understanding of Rumi to, to even do that. Yeah, I mean, I fell in love with his poetry. And, and I feel, you know, I feel in a way he's a great, 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 great uncle, you know, poetic ancestor. He's a he's a medicine man. You know, he's a guide. He's a friend. And he has so much wisdom. And the fact that he's so honest about his own process is so interesting to me. So yes, there are those poems in the book, you know, where he speaks from the eye and then the poems where he speaks from the imperative and he's telling us what to do, you know, and he says, open your eyes, open your eyes. Or he says, dismiss the vicious judge from the post you gave him, right? Bow to a human and greet the angel. You know, so there's I the imperative. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that, it's that prescriptiveness—it's yes, almost, the prescriptiveness. Yes, you know mm-hmm. that's important. That's also interesting because I feel like um, the more and more we're getting into into modern age, the more and more breaking we're breaking free of certain things, and and one of those is is not to have a teacher, is not to listen to anybody, is to listen to the self. It is the ego. It is the idea that you have become free by not listening to anybody, and and that's an ironic. Uh, take on that because Rumi, it is he is telling you he's telling you look I've done this I've been through this I know what it's like listen to me and you yeah. will become free and and I think there is that vacuum today I think young readers or older readers everybody really needs a little bit of guidance and who better to do it than somebody like Molana Rumi who I think is famous now just for just for his compassion and his love and it's clear he's not asking for yeah. anything in return Yes. And, you know, one thing that I think is so important, too, is, you know, he really values the ecstatic. He values joy. Uh, He comes to us telling telling us, you know, we have a finite time on this earth. Right. He says, 
we're fodder for death. We're fodder for death. So learn to laugh from the angel of death. He laughs at the jeweled belts and crowns of kings, all that splendor's just on loan, right? So he invites us to, you know, and when he says, um, how how many eons must must pass before the treasures I find here appear again? You know, there's such an awe and reverence for what we have here. And he's trying to just remind us, hey, you know, take a look. Yeah, and that's... and and touch into awe and reverence, you know, when he says, "Be a fool, be a fool, soaked in awe, and drunk on love, till dry reeds are sweet as sugar cane." You know, he's inviting us to be uh, wild in our love and allow that sensation, allow the ecstatic value of the ecstatic. And you know, there's that that phrase, "hurt people, hurt people," right? And this awareness that, for instance, Genghis Khan, Putin. Hitler, these guys are miserable guys that are trapped in a self-obsessed ego. You know, nothing that Putin has is enough. Billions and billions or maybe trillions of dollars. He has a trillion, I think. I'm not sure, but he has so much money and so much um, power, and it's not enough, you know. But this kind of crazed uh, sociopathic energy is something that, that, Rumi was also aware of. I mean, he was living during the time of the Mongol invasions. Genghis Khan and his armies were, were you know, galloping across the Middle East, across Central Asia, and um, wreaking all kinds of havoc. And the same lands that they traveled, you know, he Rumi traveled as a young boy uh, with his with his family, and they traveled in a caravan. And so he spent the nights under, you know, skies full of stars. And we can only imagine what the orchards of the time smelled like, the fragrance of the flowers, which, of course, he speaks of often. You know, nature appears in Rumi's poetry often, the birds, the flowers, and so on and so forth. So he had such an awareness of what existence on Earth can be, right? How beautiful it can be how sensual and beautiful it can be and how horrific it can be. And he knew that humans are capable of manufacturing pain and manufacturing suffering. And whether it's, you know, just a person in their own room driving themselves crazy in their own mind, you know, as I talked about the doom-ridden thinking, that word vas-vas we talked about, or it's someone like Genghis Khan, you know, marching across and, and plundering cities. Um, you know, this awareness is very important and to respect joy and not be ashamed of joy, but to celebrate it and invite it is, is a political act, is a salvation. Um, it's important. That's, that's perfectly put. I, I'm going to end this with just, I want to read a few lines from another poem, if, if that's okay with you. Please, please. And this is very topical in what you just mentioned. He says, you're not a seeker. Come with us. Our curiosity is contagious. Never played a melody. Come with us. Your voice will rise in song. If you're holding vast riches, walk penniless through a land sown with love. If you're a master, become a servant to the heart. And the poem goes on. And, and that's an invitation. That's an invitation that I think is so much needed today especially with people who are lost in 
in maybe not even looking for a purpose or wondering and and really don't know where to go or they're lost in that power hungry egotistic frame of mind and and poetry unfortunately has become unfashionable amongst amongst the elite and the powerful and i feel like well at least in some circles but i i i feel like growing up we we valued poetry and i think even today in iran i think even Khamenei and Khomeini and they think of them whatever you like but we had a culture of you celebrate poetry and you absorb it so with with what's happening today it just seems very very critical that something like this should be in the hands of more people so mm-hmm. i'll thank you one more time and say i really do hope there's a second and a third part and maybe more yes. and uh, and you continue giving <laughs> um and 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 rumi and rumi is 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 very important from different reasons and and i think yeah. his place today we we haven't seen in any other poets by far and so he will he will stay with us for a while so i think having translations that inspire like yours are are, are critical and it's coming out on the 8th of march that's right that yeah that's right yes so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i encourage everybody listening to to get a copy of this and um and i look forward to speaking to you again in the future hopefully there's a second part to this yes 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 i yeah i look forward to doing the second volume so that's definitely on on my mind and i look forward to starting it and um you know if any of the listeners are living in new york city we're, we'll have a book launch on march 15th if you go to halaliza.com you could find out about it we'll put that as a link um in the description okay. Thank you so yeah. much for your for your time Mahale. And yes, it was great uh, I wish to speak you the best to you. of luck. Thank you so Bye, much. Guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you and thank you for doing such a close reading of the book. I appreciate it. I have read each page at least 3 times so I'm <laughs> I'm very intimate with this already and I and I it's yes. a joy to speak to you the translator so I I'm privileged to have your time and I really value that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much Iran. Thanks for listening. Find everything in the show notes. We're on social media as Sacred Footsteps and Twitter as S Footsteps.